Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. So when entrepreneurs set out to launch a new business, only 1% of them, regardless of gender, will ever successfully raise venture capital. 1%. For women, the numbers are even more discouraging, despite the fact that women start businesses 4.8 times faster than the national average. My guest today is on a mission to change that. Julia Steele is the director of marketing for an organization called iFundWomen, an organization that provides a platform for women-led businesses to access capital through online fundraising, access to small business grants, expert coaching, and connection to a collaborative entrepreneurial community. Rooted in what it calls the iFundWomen method, which brings together three core principles of capital, coaching, and connections, it endeavors to help women level up and cross this huge traditional barrier to launching and funding businesses. Julia, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you, Aaron, so much for having me. And thank you for delivering such a concise and amazing pitch for iFundWomen. You're hired. <laughs> thank you. I take zero credit. I have an amazing team, all women, by the way, who helped me with this and helped me with the podcast. So they are very excited to have iFundWomen on and to have you on as well. So I appreciate you spending time with us today. I'm so excited to be here. So let's just start with the basics. I actually want to start with your journey because you have an interesting background in media and in consulting. And very recently, you decided to leave all that behind, yet also utilize those skills and what you've learned over the course of your own career to help others. So if you can just kind of take us through that journey. So I started on the front desk at Gawker Media in 2008, which if you know Gawker or Deadspin or any of its other sites like Jezebel, you'll know that that was the place to be in 2008. I really got a bird's eye view of the whole corporation. I worked very closely with the CEO, Nick Denton, and I just got to know all the cool downtown denizens of the media scene at that time, which was what I would call like the blog 2.0 era. You'd already gone through the kind of first iteration of tech in New York City and the blog world. And now it was growing up and needed to kind of monetize itself. So I was on a team that founded the first brand creative studio for a publisher. We called that studio at Gawker. And what we were doing was we were trying to take Gawker's sort of ineffable cool and bring it to advertisers through sponsored events, content series, video. This was sort of like the first incarnation of branded content on the internet. So that was a new concept then. After that, I spun off to work at Tumblr with a couple of other of my Gawker colleagues and sort of just built from there. I don't know whether to thank you or be upset with you with regards to branded integrations. I mean, we're involved with them all the time. And I think that they do have their place. And back in 2008, I mean, that's a long time ago, actually, when we think about it. I can't believe it's been around that long. Now, Gawker's since, I think, in a very dramatic way, went out of business because of a very famous lawsuit. I know we're not here to talk about Gawker, but it's just such a fascinating story. Listen, I'm always talking about Gawker, so I'm happy to talk about it. What's really interesting is that I had a closer look at that lawsuit than probably I should have, given that I had left Gawker five or six years before it had happened. And the reason for that is that a couple of years into me being at Tumblr, I got tapped on the shoulder by the former editor-in-chief of Gawker and Deadspin. His name was AJ Delario. And he was starting basically Gawker for local news. So we co-founded together Radder. And Radder meant to create sort of these bureaus out of different cities and sort of reinvent all of the dying local newspaper, but for the internet era with kind of a Gawker tone to it. 
And we were off to the races for a couple of years. We raised a seed round. I was in all of these VC meetings in the Bay Area and New York, which very much influenced the reason why I wanted to come to iPhone Women later because of what I experienced in those rooms. So AJ Delario, coincidentally, was the person who had actually written the Gawker.com post about Hulk Hogan and his sex tape that ended up being the post in question that Hulk Hogan's team sued over and ended up resulting in this huge lawsuit that then bankrupted Gawker Media, Nick Denton, the founder, and AJ Delario himself. So that was my co-founder, and we were in the middle of our own startup. And just because of all the craziness around it, we ended up sunsetting the startup. So that was my failed startup experience, which I believe is a very important experience in my path. And also one of the things that I can, it's like a feather in my cap. And the reason that I can advise entrepreneurs now at iFundWomen, because I have that experience of going through the whole startup journey. And actually the failure, of course, was not a failure at all, but something that I was able to build on later in my career. And had you always been interested in social impact and also women-led businesses and empowerment and entrepreneurship and all those things. So it's just like, I know you took some time off and you decided this is where I'm going to focus my energies. Well, it's really interesting. You ask about women because I grew up in a very male household. I have three older brothers and my mom traveled a bit for work when I was growing up. So a lot of the time it was just me and my dad and my older brothers. I was very much a tomboy when I was growing up. But what I've been reflecting on this later in my career, I've come to the realization that really it was watching my mom and sort of how she moved through her career with three young children. She actually put herself through an MBA program at night while raising three kids that were under 12 years old on top of her day job where she was a psychiatrist and seeing patients. So she's sort of a wonder woman. And I think that watching her and just how she moved through the world and very much was like the more career driven, kind of more ambitious one out of my parents really had a big impact on me. And how did you then get involved with iFundWomen? I was working at a consultancy called SY Partners. SY Partners is a transformation consultant. They work with the Fortune 100 primarily, the C-suite at Fortune 100 companies, really the top of the top of sort of corporate America on big change management programs that they're going through. They help them with diversity and inclusion. They'll help them with digital transformation. And I was running a marketing team there, but I really felt very removed from the end user and who my work was actually having an impact on. And so after I had been there for about three and a half years, I decided to quit without having another job lined up, which I was extremely privileged to be able to do. I had some savings. I'm married. My husband was working. And I just decided to not have any idea what I was doing for a few months and sort of very intentionally try not to try to find a new job. And after that period, I sort of went into, let's figure out what my pitch is for myself and sort of where I want to be working. And what I arrived at is the thing that I'm really most passionate about are the inequalities and writing the inequalities that exist for women, especially in terms of access to money and access to power. And then I knew I wanted to work in a New York-based company that was also women-owned and diverse. And truly, that just left me with iFundWomen. It actually made the problem really easy to solve because I had such a clear thesis of what I was looking for. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about some of the barriers women face. I think I read a stat that 
three quarters of women say they don't want to start a business because they're worried about funding. I mean, that's not like a huge revelation, but that is a large number. I think everybody's scared, but I think women in particular have always been underfunded. And I've had a lot of women on the show, black women in particular, who talk about how it's even harder for black women and women of color to get funding. So it's obviously a huge issue. Can you talk just a little bit about the mechanics of that and what you're trying to accomplish? And I'm almost certain it's not just funding, it's everything along with that. So I would say that, like you said, majority of women consider access or lack of access to capital a barrier to starting up their business, but also a full 50% of women will tell you that it's also a lack of coaches and mentors to actually show you how to do it. And then people will also tell you, we lack a community, we lack the connections that we need to be able to actually get the access to capital. So it's all this like whole system, we call it the flywheel at Women of the capital, the coaching and the connections together, which women often feel that they are lacking, and we're trying to create a system to give them. In terms of venture capital, which you see 99% of the headlines that are about startups, small businesses, they focus on who's raised an angel round, who is a unicorn, what are people valued at, who are their investors, what's their most recent round. But the reality is, as you said in the beginning of the show, is that 99% of startups or more are never going to be able to access venture capital, either because they don't have the network, or they're just not VC appropriate, they're not scalable. Typically, a VC is looking for a 10x plus return on their investment. That's not a reality for most small businesses, nor should it be. We're trying to provide this alternate source of capital in the online fundraising platform that we deploy. So we're giving people access to rewards-based crowdfunding, but also grants as a way to sort of prove demand for their business and show them that they can get coached to have a revenue generating business that might not have that monster scale that equity investors would be looking for. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be that way. I totally get that. Not everybody wants to be a unicorn. By the way, just because you're a unicorn doesn't mean that's the major gauge of success. You could have a business that's a couple million dollars in revenue, but if it's what you love to do and you're bringing joy to a certain segment or you're fulfilling an unmet need in the market, isn't that good enough too? You don't have to be a unicorn or a multi-hundred million dollar business. It's true. But say you are a unicorn and you're a black woman engineer and you're working on a really interesting problem and you've got a great team around you. It is still going to be extremely hard to raise that VC, even if you are a VC appropriate company, because the stats show us that in the past 10 years, black women have only accessed 0.06% of all the VC capital dollars that were deployed in the past 10 years. So they're basically being asked to push a boulder up a hill without the connections, the access to capital, and also kind of like the coaching and mentors that they need to succeed. Sometimes we talk about at Women the fact that we're kind of creating the golf course for female entrepreneurs. Because you look at Silicon Valley and other places where white men typically have built businesses, and it really is like an old boys club still you go to the golf course, what do you do on the golf course? You're talking about challenges you're having at work. You're making connections with people. Women typically have been shut out of these spaces. And although we like to think that it is getting better, actually VC 
in Q3 of 2020 just had its worst quarter in three years in terms of funding female founders. So it's not getting better. And I think it's going to be really important for companies like iFundWomen and other alternative sources of funding to really step up and fill in that gap when we are looking at companies that are VC fundable and scalable. Listen, I've had some amazing guests on from Farm Girl Flowers to The Honey Pot, and they say the same exact thing that you're saying. And they have had to work a hundred times harder to get their business off the ground and go into serious debt and leverage and risk everything, not just their livelihood, everything they own in order to get these businesses off the ground. Because they start at not a disadvantage, but a major disadvantage versus men. Yeah. And the fact that women of color particularly are a starting behind the starting block when it comes to access to capital, but also what we've realized through coaching women of color entrepreneurs over the past four years that we've had women, is there's a deeper hesitation to asking for money, even in a crowdfunding setting. There's a lack of sometimes a network that you can turn to to ask for funds. So we created iFundWomen of Color, which is our new platform to support diverse entrepreneurs as they grow successful businesses back in January at the Women's March. And we had no idea how relevant it was going to become during the pandemic because there's an even bigger issue now with women of color and diverse entrepreneurs being shut out of government assistant loans and the Paycheck Protection Program. It's like all the systemic biases and racism that exists in our society are manifesting in our financial services system. And the pandemic has definitely not helped. I feel like you're describing in action the definition that a lot of people confuse between equity and equality. And obviously, the difference being that equality is treating everybody the same. And equity is helping those who are in the margins who have historically been treated unfairly or had disadvantage with more opportunity to try to get to equality. And that's what you're doing. That's exactly what you're doing. The founder of iFundWomen, Karen Kahn, who's such an amazing advocate for women of color entrepreneurs, women-owned businesses. Obviously, that's why she started iFundWomen. She was giving an interview to a reporter yesterday who was asking about what the Biden administration will need to really focus on to get a stimulus package actually passed quickly. And she had a great hypothesis, which was what would happen if this PPP money, this next go around only went to women of color entrepreneurs. What massive impact would that have on our economy? Because they are being so left in the dark when it comes to funding that there's not equal opportunity and there's not that equality in terms of just ability to be successful with your business. And obviously that's not a realistic scenario, but I think you see so many times we go on panels all the time for iFundWomen. People ask us to be on panels and all the other panelists are people from startup organizations and they're white men and people making the decisions about who is accessing the capital or who is investing in companies. Often those partners at VC firms, they are all white men as well. So it's like the people who hold the keys are not necessarily the people they're funding. And that's why the systemic biases just keep going on and on. And how many businesses has iFundWomen funded and or helped since its inception? You guys are what, four years old? Four years. years We launched very shortly after the 2016 election. I think there was a lot of lady-focused organizations that launched in that time for obvious reasons. And we have funded thousands of entrepreneurs. I'm not sure the exact number. 
I know that a recent stat that we put out was that we have empowered our entrepreneur community to raise over $50 million in capital. That's both on our platform through crowdfunding and grant programs and through coaching that we've done with them on how to raise VC and angel or how to get a small business loan. So that just is an incredible impact that we're so proud of. It's a little meta because you are a woman founded startup for women and you are approaching about 20 staffers right now. How are you funded? How do you keep the lights on? It's really interesting. So Karen Connor, founder, came out of Google. She was an entrepreneur kind of at Google. She went on to be one of the first people to monetize branded content at YouTube. So if you see, there's sort of a common thread between her and I. And I believe she was self-funding the company in the beginning, and then she wanted to go out and raise a seed round. And the way that she did it was really interesting. She actually put together an investor roadshow, which was at the wing in 2018, and basically had all the investors come to her. And she brought in a couple of team members that worked with us, our product manager, our early employee, who's also now the creator of iPhone Women of Color, Olivia Owens, and then a few of our customers who had actually been on the platform. And so it was almost like she brought our pitch deck alive so investors could actually see for themselves what iPhone Women was all about rather than having the typical, you're just running through the slides in a boardroom. Because obviously, we know that system is broken, particularly for female-founded companies. And we just had an idea to do it a little bit differently. And is iFundWomen a nonprofit? Is it a social benefit corporation? Is it a for-profit? How are you structured? It is a for-profit enterprise. And as we often coach our entrepreneurs who are nonprofits, because we have both nonprofits and for-profit companies on the docket at iFundWomen, really nonprofit status is just, that's your tax status. And you should still be running nonprofits like a business. And you can definitely crowdfund if you're a nonprofit and are looking for funds. And we have not gone through the public benefit corporation route yet. I don't think it's off the table for the future, but it's not something that we set up in the beginning. And do you take equity positions in any of these companies? No, we don't. There's a number of other equity crowdfunding sites. iPhone Women is a rewards-based crowdfunding platform. So we encourage people to use crowdfunding as a way to build their early prototypes and MVPs and really just pull together an audience and some press interest and all the other things that crowdfunding is good for, and then put their product into the marketplace and kind of test, learn, iterate, and then move on to other funding sources from there. Another one of the funding sources being grants on iPhone women. So something that's been really interesting during the pandemic, we actually just launched this new product in May. It's called Enterprise Brokered Grants. So what we saw in April is that large corporations like Unilever, Adidas, Visa, they started coming to iFund Women and saying, what can we do for the small business community? What is there to be done? They wanted to make sure that their marketing felt really authentic and they actually wanted to have impact, not just the sort of like phantom of impact. And so we launched a product called Enterprise Brokered Grants that allowed them to use iFund Women as a grant logistics platform where we source all of the entrepreneurs for them. They set the criteria and then we go through a screening process with the entrepreneurs and ultimately they'll award different entrepreneurs that fit their criteria grant money for them to use in their business. So is that what happened with your partnership with Adidas or is that something separate? So for Adidas, 
that program was all about reimagining sports for women. And so the idea there was that actually Adidas and iPhone women have very similar missions. We're very aligned with our values. Women, despite the fact that 40% of athletes are women, women athletes only garner about 4% of the media coverage. So think about it, Erin, when you think of athlete, who's the first person that comes to your mind? And don't say a woman because I know you'll be lying. (laughs) Well, it depends. I mean, I have a kind of a different view. I'm more of a baseball fan than anything else. But the first person that comes to my mind, actually, oftentimes is Caitlyn Jenner, to be perfectly honest with you. I love that. Because I grew up with her as one of my idols. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I do think about Michael Jordan. I always think about the greatest athletes, but as a triathlete myself, which is a pretty equal sport when it comes to gender, and women in particular have been the largest and the fastest growing triathlete population. I think about a lot of women and they are incredible, incredible athletes. So it depends. So I'm more of a participant sport kind of person than a spectator kind of person. But I get what you're saying. It is very like LeBron and Michael Jordan and I mean, I get it in very also football. I mean, the NFL in and of itself is this crazy, impenetrable machine, and it is a hyper-masculine, and it's got all sorts of other kind of baggage with it. So I get what you're saying. And women are fabulous athletes for many reasons why they're great entrepreneurs. It takes grit. It takes strength. It's incredible problem solving. It's teamwork. It's all the things that you need to be a great entrepreneur, make you a great athlete. And so this program was really about women entrepreneurs in sport matching their access to all the amazing work that they're doing. So Adidas put out a call for grant applicants and we put up the application. We got so many amazing applicants into the mix and we ended up selecting a number of women in sport entrepreneurs and really funding their campaigns. One of which my favorite is actually called Black People Will Swim. And their whole mission is teaching 2020 Black people to swim by December 2020. And the idea there is that historically, Black people have been shut out of a lot of the places where they can go and swim in public and enjoy swimming on hot days. And so it's created a little bit of like a cultural aversion to swimming. And so the idea is to flip the narrative there and sort of you can't be what you can't see. So show people that they actually can swim. I love that. I mean, that's just one of probably hundreds of examples that you have. Is there a favorite program, investment, or partnership that you've had that you keep coming back to and you're so very proud of with iFundWomen? So we actually are, this is off script, we are announcing something on Thursday the 19th, which is very much like under embargo before then, but obviously you're not launching this podcast until next year, so I can talk about it and it'll be This is a 2021 podcast? Okay. And I had Just no problem double, double checking. date stamping. We're in November right now, November 12th, actually. So it's totally fine. Okay, great. So yes, the program we announced with American Express back in November was definitely my favorite iPhone Women grant program that we've done so far. American Express came to us and specifically wanted to fund Black women-owned businesses, 
they made a huge investment in this program. It was actually part of their larger $1 billion initiative around racial diversity, which included both internal moves that they were making on Amex teams, but also external moves with partners like iFundWomen. The program was called 100 for 100, and we selected 100 Black women entrepreneurs and gave them $25,000 each in grants and 100 days of coaching and membership. And the reason I love that program so much is that iFundWomen's number one KPI is and will always be funding volume for female entrepreneurs. And that significant investment that Amex was able to make was so life-changing for so many of our entrepreneurs. We do these ceremonies when we actually let the entrepreneur know that they have won a grant. And I got to sit in on a couple of these for American Express. And it was just when you tell a budding entrepreneur that's been in business for two years and maybe has 20 or 30 grand in revenue per year that they're getting a $25,000 debt-free grant to be able to actually put together a marketing budget for the following year, which is going to have just great exponential impact on their business. It's just so huge. It's huge. And part of the excitement there is tracking their progress and their success and following their journey, which I think is actually even more exciting. Obviously, the initial grant is exciting because that's how you catalyze it all. But to me, I can't wait to actually watch their success and their progress over the next year or two. I can't either, Aaron. And I think because Black women in particular have had to be so resourceful with every single dollar that they get into business because of all the disparities in terms of access to capital that we discussed before, the impact that that $25,000 grant can have in terms of them being profitable and turning it into massive revenues for their companies, the prospects are mind-blowing. So in our remaining time, I'd love your thoughts and advice, and you have to promise this is unedited, which it sounds like it will be. So I don't know if you're familiar with Jenna Arnold, and she wrote this book called Raising Our Hands, and she was one of the organizers of the historic 2017 Women's March. She's amazing. She wrote this book. She'd been on the show, and she said the book was for white women everywhere. And I said to her, well, I disagree. Actually, I got so much out of this book. It's for everyone everywhere. So my question for you is, what advice do you give me and your three cis white gender men, brothers, and others, other males out there on how we can help? Outside of I Fund Women, what is it that the typical white male, educated male, can do for the cause? Such a great question, Aaron, and thank you for asking that. One of my brothers may be a lost cause, but I'll direct this at you and two of them. <laughs> Let's hear his name. Let's do it. No, just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say there's a couple of different levels that I would suggest that you work. Number one would be you as a consumer. So you have purchasing power. In fact, you likely have more purchasing power than women or particularly women of color because you're likely making more money. So where you put that money is incredibly important. There is so much effort around putting out lists of women-owned businesses. I would be biased and say, go to ifundwomen.com and fund a startup that you find interesting. But you could also go to the Female Founder Collective and look at their list of women-owned businesses. You could go to We Are Women Owned, which is a great organization that ifundwomen partners with. It's not hard to find women-owned businesses that you can actually do all of your shopping at. Number two would be kind of mentorship and sponsorship. So in your organization, the first thing that you should do as a leader would be 
I once heard a great panel discussion with Melody Hobson, who's the head of Aerial Investments. She happens to be George Lucas's wife, but that is the least important thing that she does. She's a complete badass. And the session was about diversity and sort of why can't Fortune 500 companies get it right with their leadership teams and their boards? Why is it so hard to make those groups diverse? And she said, it's actually not that hard. She's a Black woman. She said, the first thing you have to do is you literally have to count. Go around your organization and count people on leadership teams and on management teams and see what are the actual numbers here. If you're not counting and you're not looking for parity or at least a population that looks like the population of your city and the diversity of your city, then you're doing it wrong. There's something broken in your interview process. There's something on the job descriptions that people are screening out certain words and thinking, oh, this company is not for me. There's lots of softwares that can help you in the hiring process become more equitable. I think transparent pay is there's a movement around making your pay transparent across the organization. I know it's a little bit out there right now, and most companies are not doing it, but I think in the future they will. So those would be sort of your individual level of purchasing your inside of your organization. And then I would say, try to, if you are living in a city that is on land that was taken from an indigenous culture, look up where you are, try to recognize where you are. And try to just put money back into your community and be cognizant of sort of like the inequalities that exist around us. So that's a great answer. Not surprising. That's a great answer. But I lied. I do have one more question. I had an organization on not long ago that focused on returnships. So women in particular, who for various reasons, usually family oriented, I think about my wife who left the workforce for many years. We have the same level of education. The difference is she's way smarter than I am, but she decided, and we decided together, but we made the decision that she is going to stay home and focus on our children, which is okay. There's nothing wrong with that decision. But she, along with tens of thousands of other women are figuring out now, okay, so I've been out of the workforce for so many years and how do I get back in? And there are these incredible organizations and programs that are increasingly becoming more available, but there aren't enough of them called returnships where you're coming back in, you're easing your way back in. What are your thoughts about that and how I fund women may or may not, in one way or another, also look at that unmet need in the market, which is still huge. I know we have a lot of work to do in lots of different places, but that's one that I also am thinking a lot about. Returnship is an interesting issue because it's thought of as just a women's issue for women who go out on family leave. But in fact, it affects all genders because I am a millennial. My parents are getting older at a certain point. My husband may need to step back because he's caring for his mother. We don't have a culture of paid family leave in this country, and that needs to change. I think we're recording this podcast a week after the 2020 election. And as much as people on the left are happy that Biden is president, really the work begins now in terms of rallying your elected officials and making sure that they are looking at things like family, that they are looking at things like paid childcare, which has proven to be a huge barrier to women sort of stepping out of the workforce or not being able to go for the highest rungs of the jobs within their organization because they just literally can't do it with the ingrained sort of societal notion that women are the primary caretakers of their children. So I think there's the huge structural issue, but then there's also things that can be done through legislation and on the company level that really help women have a fair shot at work. And of course, 
it's even more disproportionately shocking that America is so far behind compared to our peers in throughout Europe and the Scandinavian countries when it comes to family leave. It's embarrassing. There's nowhere to go but up, Aaron. <laughs> okay, I like that. That's good optimism. And given the timing of this podcast, at least when we're recording it, I've never been happier and more optimistic about our collective future, at least in four years, four and a half, five years. So I'm feeling very, very good. I'm feeling better than I've ever felt. And it's interesting. I know this is not about me, but I didn't realize how much anxiety I had before the election until after the election. I didn't realize how much, how weighted down I felt and how worried and anxious I was about things I can't control. It didn't come to the fore until they left. And like you said, we have a lot of work to do in so many different areas, but man, I'm definitely breathing better right now. Same. Hopefully when you air this in January, we're not living through a military coup. Or if we are that, it goes in the right direction. <laughs> and we're on the side of the Constitution. So like Julia, it was great to have you on. I appreciate your time, everything that you do. For our listeners, please check out Women, both as potential supporters, but also applicants. And I'm excited to follow your progress and the organization's progress over the coming years. Thank you. And everybody who's listening, if you are a small business, we actually work with men and women. We have a lot of male, female co-founder teams on iFund Women. Shoot me an email, julia at ifundwomen.com. I'd love to chat. I'd love to work on your pitch with you and just give you some other ways to engage with the platform. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I've had this discussion with others on the show as well. Gender identity in general is now less binary, more fluid than ever before. So I think it's important that we all just continue to recognize that, especially as we endeavor to build businesses together. 100%. Thanks, Aaron. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quitkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com.